We've all had that difficult person we needed to deal with. In fact, if your organization is going to influence the world in any meaningful way, you're going to run into challenging personalities fairly often. On this episode, I welcome the chief economics correspondent of the Wall Street Journal with a case study on how to handle a difficult stakeholder. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 581. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Of course, one of the challenges that many of us have in our work each day is working with stakeholders. So many of us have multiple stakeholders. And of course, many of us also have one or more difficult stakeholders. How do we effectively work with a difficult stakeholder in a way that will help us to keep the big picture there and to move forward and to keep the relationship strong? Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert who has done a deep dive analysis of one of the most interesting institutions in the United States, also looking at a key leader in our government and how we may take some inspiration for how he has actually approached working with a difficult stakeholder. I'm so glad to welcome Nick Timoros to the show. He has been the chief economics correspondent at the Wall Street Journal since 2017, where he was responsible for covering the Federal Reserve and other major developments in U.S. economic policy. He joined the journal in 2006 and previously covered the 2008 presidential election. He wrote about the U.S. housing markets and the mortgage industry as a reporter based in New York. His coverage included the government's response to the foreclosure crisis and the takeover of finance companies Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Other assignments have included the Treasury Department, fiscal policy, and the Puerto Rican debt crisis. He is the author of Trillion Dollar Triage, How Jay Powell and the Fed Battled a President and a Pandemic and Prevented an Economic Disaster. Nick, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Nick, I have to come clean with you. This is a book about economics and policy and what happened in the Federal Reserve. And I expected to be interested in this book, but I did not expect to be captivated by it. And I got into the book and I started reading it, and it captivated me so much. I ended up downloading the audiobook, listening to it when I was out running, which I think is a first for an economics book. Of well, thank you. That's audio. very, very generous. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you enjoyed it. I did. I saw Warren Buffett has endorsed the book as well, too, also mentioning how captivating it was. It is an incredible look at what happened in 2020 how the Federal Reserve, our central banking system, responded to the crisis, and specifically what Jay Powell did, the chair of the Federal Reserve. And I think it's a really incredible insight into some of the things that all of us can do in order to work with difficult stakeholders. Before we dive into what they did, I think it might be helpful just to start a bit with those especially who are in other places or may not appreciate the role of the Federal Reserve. Could you frame what the Federal Reserve Board is and the role of the chair of the Fed in our system? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. So the Federal Reserve is really a bank for banks. It was created 109 years ago because the country had been through several financial panics and the business and political leaders of the country decided that that was no way to run an economy and there should be a lender 
of last resort, a reserve lender. So they created the Federal Reserve. The Fed has a very interesting system. It's sort of a public-private decentralized arrangement because we had actually had two national banks in the early 19th century, but there was a lot of distrust of banking interests. And so to sort of bridge that discomfort, there are 12 reserve banks across the country. They're in Dallas and San Francisco and Atlanta, and each one has a president. And then there's a board in Washington, seven members. They are appointed by the president to 14-year terms. They're staggered. So there's a new seat open every two years. And that means that one president, in theory, can't completely replace the Federal Reserve Board at the beginning of his or her term to provide a little bit of, of insulation from political pressures. And the board has a chair, which today, of course, is Jay Powell. And then the board and the Reserve Bank presidents have what's called the Federal Open Market Committee. That is the rate setting committee. So when you read or hear on the radio about the Fed net and they cut interest rates or they raised interest rates, what they're talking about is this 12-person committee. It's the seven governors and then the 12 Reserve Bank presidents, they have a rotation. So not all of them have a vote at any one time, but they are the ones who set monetary policy. And then, of course, the Fed also regulates national banks and has, has other jobs in payment processing and kind of boring things like that. But the, the, the job of the Fed really is to ensure that we have a stable economy, a stable financial system. And Congress has assigned them two goals that are to keep inflation stable and then to ensure that there's strong employment. Early 2020 was an unbelievable time of chaos for all of us. And while many of us were thinking about our own health and safety and having food and supplies, what was happening inside of government and specifically inside of the Fed is just um, is just extraordinary. And Powell and the Fed uh, governors were just navigating two unbelievable complexities at once, once one, the pandemic. And then also, and they had already been navigating this, a president that was a difficult stakeholder. And I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that Trump is a difficult stakeholder. Even the people who are worked in the White House with him, uh, you know, have been on record many times of saying, you know, how unpredictable he would be and how difficult and they'd have to navigate around his daily emotions. And I think it's really interesting how some of what Powell and their team did to navigate this crisis successfully um, really leans on kind of the who he is and what he did in advance. And some of it was what he did in the moment. And I'm interested in particular and like starting with like what he did in advance and just kind of the who he is. You write in the book, People who knew or interacted with Powell for long enough agreed on one thing. He had excellent EQ, emotional intelligence. He wasn't necessarily an extrovert, but he was good with people. My sense in reading through the book is that he really puts a priority on this, doesn't he? That's right. I, I think everything you set there framing this is exactly right. You know, he isn't the most brilliant macroeconomic forecaster. He doesn't have a PhD in, in economics. He isn't he wasn't the star trader on Wall Street, but what he, what the strengths I think he does bring to the job, and that he certainly brought in his first term, was that he he knew that 
politics mattered to the Fed. I think the Fed sometimes had held itself as apart from politics. You hear about this term, which we can get into a little bit more of Fed independence, but it really means that Congress and the White House aren't going to tell the Fed how to do its job day to day, week to week. But I think, you know, Powell had joined the board in 2012, and that was following a very wrenching period for the Fed. We were coming out of the 2008 financial crisis. It was difficult to get the economy growing as strongly as everybody wanted it to. So the Fed was resorting to more creative and controversial stimulus programs. And there was a lot of political rancor around what the Fed was doing. And I think Powell, when he became chair five years later, he replaces Janet Yellen in early 2018, recognized that his strength, you know, even though he wasn't the, the big quant PhD, was that he was a very good listener in a town where not a whole lot of people do that. And he was going to make sure that he always knew where Congress was. You know, the Fed has a boss, which is Congress, because Congress created the Fed. So you really have 535 lawmakers. And Powell promised early on he was going to wear out the carpets on Capitol Hill. And he and he did it. And he meets often with lawmakers to know what their concerns are, to know where they are, not because he was planning to cash in some chip and he knew what that chip was going to be, but because he knew that it just, when things got tough, it was going to be easier if the Fed had political support, which it had lost after the 2008 financial crisis. One of the other core competencies that he seems to really value is having a great team. Um, he talks about that in his public statements, and he started with the opportunity to actually influence a few of the open seats on the board when he came on his chair. And it seems like he really recognized, not only in that moment, the importance of finding the right people, but also just the power of teamwork and, and working as a team versus being an independent leader. It, it sounds like you get that sense from him as well, looking at how things have progressed. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of concern when Donald Trump became president among people who care about Fed autonomy or independence, because Donald Trump had been very publicly critical of the Fed right before the election in 2016. He was saying that the Fed was keeping rates low to help Democrats, that Janet Yellen was a very political person. I don't know how strongly he, he actually felt this. You know, Donald Trump spent his whole career in real estate. He knows what the Im impact of a quarter percentage point increase is on a company with a lot of debt. He right. didn't want to have high interest rates once he became president. And so there was a recognition that Trump could at some point challenge this 30 or 40 year tradition in which which had developed after the great inflation of the 1970s, in which the presidents, for the most part, left the Fed alone. Uh, really, since the Clinton administration, the presidents didn't even talk about the Fed because the idea was that if the Fed's doing a good job and you don't put pressure on them, then the markets won't have to worry. Investors won't have to worry about the Fed making bad choices to satisfy political leaders as opposed to doing what's best to keep inflation low and stable. And so Powell puts his team around him, perhaps with that recognition that this was not going to be some easy rodeo being the Fed chair under Donald Trump. And so he has a Columbia University economist named Richard Clarida, who becomes the vice chair. The vice chairmanship was open when Powell became chair. So right away, he had a chance to have a number two in the job who he believed could have his back. And then 
even though, as I was saying before, there's seven governors and 12 reserving presidents. So that's an unwieldy group you're building consensus with. But the Fed decisions are actually shaped by the Fed chair, the Fed vice chair, and then the New York Fed president is kind of the first among equals for the Reserve Bank presidents. And as it happened, the New York Fed president was retiring when Powell came in. So there was going to be a new New York Fed president. And he had a role in making sure that the New York Fed board of directors, uh, which selects the president, had uh, the San Francisco president, John Williams, actually became the New York Fed president. So Powell right away had sort of this nucleus that he was comfortable with. They were there largely because he wanted them to be there. So they, they had some loyalty to him, too. And with his team in place, that perhaps made it easier to kind of go into w- w- this storm that happened with the president of the United States becoming very critical of what the Fed was doing. And what was the Fed doing in 2018? They were slowly raising interest rates. They were raising interest rates by a quarter point once a quarter. Yeah, it really seems like he was very savvy to think like, okay, this is likely going to be a difficult stakeholder to work with, the president. What can I do in advance to put together a team? Because it's not always been the case that the Fed has had a team where people were working well together. And it strikes me as like one of the other things that he's really good at is playing the long game. You write in the book, Powell had no interest in engaging in a tough guy showdown with Trump. His overriding goal was to make sure the U.S. economic expansion, which by July 2019 would be the longest on record, did not end on his watch. But a second equally critical personal mission was coming into view. Make sure that the Fed as an institution survives the Trump years intact. And so much of his decision making and his language really seems to get to that longer, bigger term picture. It's not about do I win the battle of the day, but how do I really frame this institution thriving and doing well during this time. That's right. And, you know, in some ways, I think in hindsight, he almost exploited this negative, which is, you know, to have the president attacking you on Twitter, even though, you know, Donald Trump did that with a lot of people, it still can't be enjoyable. You know, I was sitting in the room in Jackson Hole, Wyoming in August of 2019. This is in the middle of the trade war. That morning, China had announced they were going to increase tariffs. The stock market was not taking it well. Trump's trade war was not going well. And Jay Powell's delivering the opening speech at the the Fed's annual symposium in, in Jackson Hole. And 20 minutes after he delivers the speech, Donald Trump had, had thought he was going to announce a rate cut. That's not That would not have been the setting uh, for that to happen. But Trump didn't know that. And he tweets, who is the bigger enemy, Jay Powell or President Xi Jinping of China? So being called an enemy of the state by the president doesn't feel good. But I think Powell actually exploited that negative to his benefit because what happened was, as Democrats saw that this guy wasn't going to buckle, they liked him, right? The enemy, I don't like Trump. This is kind of how Democrats thought. I don't like Trump. If Trump doesn't like this guy, then maybe he's not so bad, right? Mm. And Republicans weren't really on Trump's they weren't singing from the easy money playbook because for so many years, Republicans had been concerned that the Fed had been keeping rates too low. So Republicans see what Trump is doing to the Fed. And it's actually one of the rare instances in which Republican senators were pushing back against what Trump wanted. And so he actually used Trump's attacks, Powell did, to make himself sort of popular on Capitol Hill, not by getting in a 
you know, in a, in a shouting match or a Twitter war, but just by and sort of saying, look, you know, president has opinions, we're going to do our job. We're not going to let that influence our thinking. And it was actually very difficult, I think, in 2019, because it's easy to show that you're independent when you're doing the opposite of what somebody wants. If the president's saying lower rates, I want lower rates, and you're raising rates, well, then it's easier to show that you're independent. Nobody will question you know, whether you're trying to please the bosses. But what happened in 2019 was actually the economy started to slow down. The rest of the world started to slow down. The Fed's increases began to take a bigger bite on the economy. And Powell came to the view that actually maybe we did need to cut interest rates. Maybe the trade war was creating greater headwinds. Maybe monetary policy had uh, slowed demand more than we thought it was going to. And so when you start having to do what the president is telling you to do, now people in the markets are starting to say, well, gee, is he, you know, is he doing this because he's afraid Trump is going to fire him or because he wants to keep Trump happy? And so it actually added even more, I think, of a of a juggling act to uh, what the Fed was facing even before the pandemic hit. One of the other things that I think he's really brilliant at doing is he's really clear in all of his public statements who he's serving, the big picture, working for the American people. And he uses plain language, like imagine that from a central banker to describe what's going on. And it just so happens we're recording this a day after a Fed meeting. And I noticed you tweeted yesterday some of the statements over the last few years of how he started press conferences. And I'm actually going to read the first opening sentences of what he said yesterday in his statement. He says, uh, and I'm quoting Powell now, before I go into details of today's meeting, I'd like to take this opportunity to speak directly to the American people. Inflation is much too high, and we understand the hardship it is causing, and we're moving expeditiously to bring it down. We have both the tools we need and the resolve it will take to restore public stability on behalf of American families and businesses. The economy and the country have been through a lot over these past two years and have proved resilient. It is essential that we bring inflation down if we are to have a sustained period of strong labor market conditions that benefit all. It makes sense. And I was so struck by how plain it was that I actually... I grabbed our kids last evening, Nick, who are eight and 10 years old. And I did a little like, I don't think they had ever heard the word inflation. So I did a little like inflation 101. What does it mean? And then I read them the statement and our 10-year-old said, oh, that makes sense. And our eight-year-old said, well, I kind of understand it, but it also makes me feel better. And I thought that that's really extraordinary that the central banker of our country can use language that even kids without the full context could understand. I mean, he's really, really intentional about that. Yeah, actually, there was a study last year, Some someone did a paper on this, where they looked at the reading level, the grade level you'd have to be at to understand, you know, the speeches of Ben Bernanke and then Janet Yellen and Jay Powell. And I don't remember exactly what grade level it was, but Powell's, they found that Powell's communications came to, you know, if you had to have a graduate degree for some of the other Fed chairs, Powell was maybe a high school senior could follow it. So you're right. I mean, he does, he tries to speak in plainer language. Sometimes it has gotten him in trouble. But, you know, the example you point to yesterday, that was important. That statement that he made at the beginning there was important. He doesn't say things just sort of offhand. Those were scripted comments. And that was a very personal commitment he was making there. And, you know, the market ended up sort of rallying because of something else he said later during the day where they thought he was signaling that the Fed wouldn't have to 
raise interest rates as much as they were fearing. But actually, if you look at what, if you know that, go back to those five sentences you read, he's basically saying, you know, we are going to wring inflation out of the system one way or the other, even if we didn't cause it, even if this isn't the best tool for it because it's being caused by supply chain disruptions or what have you. And, you know, I think a year from now, people will will go back to those five sentences and and say oh yeah you know he wasn't he wasn't kidding around when he said that yeah indeed you know all of the things we've mentioned already are in the context of who he is the skills he's developed over his career and then in addition to that he also developed and I'm, I'm not sure how intentional it was but he certainly developed a playbook for handling trump specifically and one of the things you did is, as you were researching for the book, you you looked at like kind of what did he do, and you analyzed and and really surfaced like kind of four unwritten rules that you saw him doing, especially when he was in public, of how to handle Trump and kind of how to handle the White House. And I think there's like a ton of interesting perspective here in these four rules that would apply to working with lots of different difficult stakeholders. And the first one that is kind of this unwritten rule is he has this rule of not talking about Trump. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So I, I came up with these unwritten rules in 2018 when, when Trump was really starting to say, you know, the Fed is crazy. Powell doesn't know what he's doing. And just observing Powell, he never mentioned Trump. So he didn't talk about him. He would just—he just wouldn't go there, and it could be awkward at times because uh, it was the big elephant in the room. Everybody knew this was the—you know—the president's beating up on you. But he just—he just wasn't going to go there, and that couldn't have been easy. I'm sure there were times where he probably wanted to just say what was on his mind. You know, this is really unhelpful. We have a really tough job. You're just making it worse. But he never did that. The second of these rules is when provoked, don't return fire. He certainly got provoked a lot, didn't he? Both by Trump, but also by the press, other stakeholders, Congress. And yet he really has a discipline of not firing back in the moment. He would always revert to this talking point, which was just, you know, we have a job to do. We're going to do our jobs and that's it. You know, we don't take politics into consideration. We consult all, we do all this technical analysis, we consult a range of, you know, business and labor leaders, and that's our job, and we're just going to do our job. You can't convince everybody that you're not taking politics into account. It's just impossible. So that's what he would say. He stuck to that message very, very tightly all through. You've probably watched more testimony, press conferences of him than almost any other person, just because of the work that you've done and the work you do with the journal today. When you see people trying to provoke him, whether they be in the press or other government leaders, what does he do in the moment to, because it's so hard in the moment sometimes to not flashback, even if you've got like good principles of how you're going to work with people. Is there anything you see him do in the moment that just helps him to take a step back and pause a bit? I, there's nothing that I see, I've seen him do. You know, there, there's only one time I can think of where it felt like maybe he was beginning to let someone this was a congresswoman, get under his skin. He just, you know, he's he's very well sort of balanced in the remarks that he makes. And he's not trying to win an argument. You know, I think the way he views his job is we're trying to set the right policy. We're not trying to win an argument. And so when the Fed had to make a big shift in early 2019 from raising rates, first to saying we're not going to raise rates anymore, and then to cutting, 
you know, he just did what he thought was the right thing, even though it was, you know, a turnabout. The same thing has been happening recently. You know, the Fed all through 2021 held to this view and Powell held to this view that inflation pressures would largely abate on their own because they were being driven by supply chain bottlenecks. And when it became clear to him in the data that that wasn't the right benchmark or forecast or baseline to set your policy on, he changed course. And, you know, so I wouldn't say there's any one thing that he's done, but he's he's just managed to keep his cool in a number of different situations. The uh, third rule is stick to the economy, not politics. Uh, you quote him when he says, we don't try to control the things we don't control. We try to control the controllable. And uh, in looking at his work and his statements, he's really masterful at when the political questions inevitably come, that he is able to set those aside and then reframe the conversation in the context of the work that the Fed does. It just seems like that that is something he's so consistent at. Yeah. And that quote actually was something, you know, he had worked in the first Bush administration in the in the early 1990s. He had been on Wall Street before that. He had worked for Nick Brady's investment firm in New York. Nick Brady became Treasury Secretary. Powell came down with him. Then Powell goes to the Carlyle Group in the 1990s, the private equity firm here in Washington. And he works on a business deal with George Sherman, the late George Sherman, who was at Danaher Corp. And it was Sherman who used to say, we control the controllable. Focus on what you can fix. Don't spend time worrying about the things that are out of your control. So that became his mantra. Sherman's words of wisdom to him from his private equity days were sort of his uh, North Star when when Trump was raining down on him. And even though publicly uh, that, again, wasn't comfortable, it wasn't as if Republican senators were joining in and saying, yeah, Powell's terrible. You know, he's an idiot. You, you didn't have a ton of that. You know, there were there were maybe some Trump allies who had said some of that, but really not elected officials. And then you had people like Paul Volcker sending him notes saying, you're doing a great job. Stick with it. You know, his email box would fill up with with comments from people saying, keep on, keep on doing what you're doing. And so we couldn't see that publicly. But I think that also had to have some measure of, uh, all right, you know, I think we're finding a way to deal with this difficult situation, difficult boss that, uh, you know, we're going to make it work for us. Yeah, which is a great lead into his like, like the fourth unwritten rule is developing allies outside the Oval Office. And you mentioned earlier that he had this statement of like he was going to wear out the carpeting in Capitol Hill by going and visiting with members of Congress so much. It's not something that prior Fed chairs have always done as intentionally as he has. And yet he really did that. And it's really extraordinary reading through some of the quotes in the book of Republican senators pulling him aside in private and saying exactly what you just said, like, you're doing a great job. Keep going. You're handling Trump well. And it's just remarkable. Not only does he do a really good job of building allies when there's a difficult stakeholder he needs to work with, but also there's an element of psychology there. Like if you have a difficult person you're working with, but you've got a lot of other people who are stakeholders who are pulling for you, giving you great feedback, that I, my sense is, I mean, we'll never know, but my sense is, is like that a lot of that really helped him at some of the more difficult times. Oh, it definitely did. It definitely did. And, you know, I should note that what Trump was doing 
was unusual to an extent because recent presidents had not attacked Fed chairs. But, you know, there's a whole history from, you know, the the 1940s through, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson berating his Fed chair because he wanted easy money during the Vietnam War. Richard Nixon, you know, really kind of tormenting Arthur Burns, who was a Burns was his Fed chair, an economist who was very loyal to Nixon, very devoted to Nixon. And, you know, it contributed to some of the problems in the in the 1970s of high inflation. So there's there's certainly a history where the presidents have leaned on Fed shares. I think what was different about Trump was one, how public he was in putting pressure. Presidents had typically done it privately because they thought it would be more effective that way, getting what they want. But also because there had sort of been this new consensus since the 1990s that you actually would get better policy if you weren't badgering the Fed. And again, making investors have to wonder, well, is the Fed doing this because they think it's the right thing to do or because it's it's political? And actually, you know, uh, George Bush Sr. was the last president before Trump who had done this, who had put pressure on the Fed. And you can see in the Fed meetings there's a Fed meeting in 1992 when Bush is running for re-election and he gives an interview to the New York Times saying he wants, he thinks the Fed needs to ease the money supply. And there's a discussion at the meeting where one of the governors says, I worry if we if we do what we think we need to do here, it's going to look like we're doing it because Bush wants us to do it. So, you know, there was definitely a history there of this sort of thing happening, but it hadn't happened for for quite some time. And that's what made it more jarring when Trump was doing it. Nick, it's really an extraordinary case study of working with someone who's, uh, you know, very difficult uh, in so many interactions. And yet, obviously, the Fed did a lot. And we're, we didn't even get into the response to the pandemic, but there's so much that the Fed did very proactively to mitigate what could have been a disa- much more disastrous situation economically. It's just a fascinating read. I thank you so much for opening up. I, I can't even imagine the research you did for this book of like all the details, the discussions every day, the emails. It's really a fascinating uh, account. So I hope folks will, uh, will, will seek it out if they'd like to get into this. Um, I want to ask you one other question. I, I often ask experts, you know, as you've done your work, what have you changed your mind on? Because I think we're all you know, learning and growing and seeing the world in different ways as we get into our work. As you researched this book, as you looked even more at the Fed and especially the last couple of years, what's something that you changed your mind on? Well, I don't know if I changed my mind. I mean, as I'm a news reporter, I'm not supposed to take opinions, but I think that there maybe was some naivete on my part about this idea, you know, what Fed independence means and the idea that you know, the Fed makes decisions independent from politics. They certainly try. That's certainly the goal. Um, And I'm not saying that their day-to-day decisions are political in any obvious way. But I think the research I did helped me to understand better that, you know, the Fed does operate on a playing field that is defined by politics. They can't do something that doesn't have political support, even if they have the operational independence to do it. And so that's why I think Powell's cultivating of lawmakers is so important because to the extent that you have people rowing with you, or at least not rowing against you, it does give you that political autonomy to do difficult things. You know, when Paul Volcker was defeating, trying to crush inflation with very painful medicine in the early 1980s, he says at several meetings, 
you know, the public's with us right now, but they're not going to be with us forever. We really got to get this done now before we lose the public support. And people in Congress were talking about putting the Fed inside the Treasury and, you know, impeaching Volcker. And so, you know, I do think we went through a period where maybe we thought, oh, yeah, the Fed, you know, the Fed can always do whatever they want because they're independent. And that independence is sometimes overstated. Nick Timros is the author of Trillion Dollar Triage, How Jay Powell and the Fed Battled a President and a Pandemic and Prevented Economic Disaster. Nick, thank you so much for your work. Dave, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. I was an econ major for a while in college, so this book was like catnip for me. And if you have any interest in economic policy and the business news and how these decisions are made at the big picture macro level, I think you'll find this book really fascinating. But even if that's not you, the bigger message for me here is when you are dealing with a difficult person, have a plan. Most of us know if we step outside of the moment to think about Where does this person push my buttons? What's the right action to take given the difficult personality that I'm working with? And how do I apply that consistently over time? I think most of us have some really good principles for doing that if we're willing to do what Jay Powell did and to put those principles into action in advance and to be consistent. Thanks again, Nick, for the great conversation. Several related episodes, if you found this useful. One of them is episode 91, How to Listen When Someone is Venting. Mark Goulston was my guest on that episode. Mark, a psychiatrist and a expert at working with leaders through some of the most difficult situations. In episode 91, we talked through three tactics to respond when someone is venting at you. And we see, sadly, so many examples of that happening in society and in our news right now. And it's happening inside some organizations too. If that's the situation you're in, episode 91 might provide some direction for you on what to do next. I'd also recommend episode 164, How to Handle a Boss Who's a Jerk. Tom Henschel and I had a conversation way back on that episode about what do you do if you're in that unfortunate situation? I hope that's not your situation, but if it is, uh, there are some things you can do that help you to have a little bit more mental sanity during the day and also to be able to tactically take some steps that will keep you in a good place and help you to navigate a tough situation. Episode 164 for more on that. And then finally, I recommend the excellent work of Amanda Ripley. On episode 529, we talked about the way out of major conflict. Uh, Amanda and I talked about what she calls high conflict. When we get into situations where there's just a ton of conflict that happens that that is really, really difficult for us to avoid getting bogged down into, all of us are capable of being grabbed by conflict and behaving in ways that we don't want to. Episode 529 is a little bit of the background on looking at that from the big picture perspective. And then, of course, how to exit that if you find yourself in that situation. Again, that's episode 529. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't before, please go over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership. Just take you a couple of minutes to do so. It'll give you access to everything here inside of our library, all of the conversations we've had over the years on difficult situations, this one and many others, plus all of the past episodes searchable by topic. So if you are looking for something right now that'll be helpful to you on your management skills, handling conflict, difficult situations, engaging employees, whatever's important to you right now, the episode library is a wonderful place to start. Plus, access to my entire personal library, 
all of our member casts, the weekly leadership guide, and tons more inside the free membership. Uh, Go over to coachingforleaders.com, set that up, and you'll have access with all of us. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Molly West Duffy to the show. She is going to be giving us some useful advice on how to compare ourselves to others. Well, yeah, actually, you know, we always hear we shouldn't compare ourselves to others, right? Well, we're going to be hearing a different perspective next week, uh, actually, how we can compare ourselves to others in a useful way. Join me for that conversation with Molly next Monday. Look forward to seeing you then.